This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. This week, Lori Barth joins us to talk about building a career you'll love, networking you won't hate, and a proven strategy to beat imposter syndrome. Let me tell you about the fine folks at Infinite Red who are sponsoring this show today. If you're building a React or React Native app and you're feeling stuck, check out Infinite Red. They are pro unstuckers for React and React Native projects. They've helped hundreds of companies like yours build beautiful, functional web and mobile apps, and they teach you as you build together. They've taught tens of thousands of developers through open source and their annual React Native conference, Chain React. React podcast listeners get two free tickets to Chain React 2021 for referring or starting a new project. Visit reactpodcast.infinite.red and build a beautiful, functional app today. Lori, welcome to React Podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I feel like we've been saying we were going to do this for a long time. <laughs> I am very excited to have you on. And yes, we have been ex- saying that for a long time. Um, I <laughs> It became really hard to book people on this show <laughs> that were not like moving to Gatsby, like, <laughs> like in the near term or like just hired at Gatsby or like moving to Gatsby by the time that we would record. Like it's just and so I've, I've kind of just given up on, on, on that. Like, <laughs> Some of the best people work at Gatsby. Yeah, I remember you were like, Lori, let's put you on the show. And I was like, okay, but full disclosure, I haven't announced yet, but I'm about to go to Gatsby. And you're like, well, drat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've, I've given up. I like, I think that at some point, like, I'm just going to have like a, like a Gatsby quarter or something like that. Oh, yeah, we've infiltrated like... the show. It's fine. <laughs> but that's just proof that we hire great people, right? Like... It is. It is very truthful that you hire great people i'm 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 amazed amazed um so yeah so i wanted to kind of get you on the show we have so much to talk about the theme i think today is going to be navigating a career in tech because you have so much great material and content on that Uh, but before we we kind of dive into that i was just hoping to get uh, a glimpse into kind of like what your career has looked like so far like obviously you work at gatsby but what are some of the other like jobs that you've had that have kind of led to your thinking about how to navigate a career in tech? Sure. Um, So I started in the federal government, which always throws people for a loop. (laughs) I started in this ginormous, you know, bureaucracy company, things move slow. And I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a software engineer at the time. I was a program manager for technical projects and I could not have hated it more. Uh, It was, it was a terrible, terrible fit for me, but I think it has had the most influence on my career because one, it showed me very early what I didn't want to do. And two, from then on, I always kind of had this more 10,000 foot view of everything I did as a developer, which I think a lot of people don't have until later in their career. And so I ended up, my next job was in a consulting company, but it was not kind of your typical consulting company. I was sitting I was basically part of a company that was outsourced to build tools and dashboards and things for for larger kind of Fortune 500 companies. Gotcha. It was almost as if we owned the product ourselves. I didn't really interact with the client all that much until we were finally giving over uh, what we built over a year or whatever it was. And then I left there and went to a slightly more traditional consulting company. I would go to a lot of meetings to give kind of white 
paper rundowns of how they could solve their higher level cultural issues. We would get hired as technical experts, right? But the thing I always say is you prove your technical expertise, they bring you in, and then you explain to them why their technical problem is actually a people problem because... <laughs> oh, man, it's so true. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> and then when I was doing stuff where I was coding, I was embedded with their teams. So the idea was that I was helping teach them how to make whatever it is we were building, make it more scalable, more robust over time so that we it wouldn't be this kind of throw something over the wall, but that they were hands-on the entire time it was being built. And then I went to Gatsby. And so... If you look at my public persona and the things that I've done in terms of teaching and all of that, it never truly matched up with what I was doing behind the scenes at my day job. It just, each of those those consulting life things informed a lot of the perspective that I had. Um, it, make, it made me really enjoy teaching. And it constantly, I would joke literally all the time that when you work in consulting, you don't have a tech stack. Your tech stack is whatever your customer or client says it is. Yeah. And so I was in so many different areas. I mean, I've described this before, but there was genuinely a month in, I want to say, 2018, where I was working on a um, Due, Arduino Due hardware project. I was working on a database design for this ridiculously complicated project. I was working on a view front end enterprise <laughs> application. I was working on a white paper for uh, figuring out how to use content newspaper stuff in a, I can't even explain it anymore. <laughs> um, and then I was working on a AWS CI CD pipeline in the same month at the same time. Unbelievable. And yeah. there's, it, there's nothing like it. I mean, no one can say that I, now I feel so focused and so like siloed in this one <laughs> world and it's great. Uh, it's fun. It's something different. But yeah, I, a lot of what you saw me do was just born out of the fact that I was jumping around. And actually, that's kind of the most constant thing. I've always had to learn quite a bit because I was jumping around. And so now I have very strong views about learning and teaching. So. Now, do you have a preference? I guess one of the first things that I find interesting is that you, you, you've had an experience. You've had experiences on both sides, mm -hmm. right? So you have you have the experience where it's like you're just you're doing everything, right? <laughs> from from like you know writing and like content and you know kind of therapy, like organizational therapy, to actually like CI/CD pipelines and like we do call it that. That was a thing we would call it company <laughs> therapy. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> and and now you're a little bit more, like you said, focused. You're doing kind of mm -hmm. one thing. You're focusing all your attention on one thing. Do you have a preference and, um, you know, or do you like to kind of like keep it, keep it moving? Yeah. So um, there's a couple different pieces to that. So I am more focused in terms of I work at Gatsby. But as a staff engineer on the learning team, I almost consider myself an internal consultant because <laughs> I'm working with the open source team. I'm also working with the marketing team on some DevRel stuff. I'm also working with the themes team on all their cool R&D projects. And I'm working with the product team for Gatsby Cloud. And so I'm working across kind of everything that Gatsby as a framework touches, which is maybe more than someone who doesn't work at Gatsby would think of just off the top of their head. Sure. So yes, it is focused in some ways, but you know, it's got everything from CI/CD pipelines to organizational culture stuff. It's like nothing <laughs> has changed. Um, 
And the other piece of this that I think gets a a little complicated is if you are, I've said this before, but if you are constantly jumping between different technology stacks and you never get to build on what you learned before, you feel like you're in quicksand. You get really yeah. frustrated because you constantly, you don't really have like a, a rock to grab onto as it were. Mm-hmm. So I prefer whatever, whatever it looks like. I mean, if it's, I'm doing only stuff in JavaScript or I'm doing only stuff for this one company and one particular product or whatever it is. I prefer something that allows you to at least have 50% of your job that builds on itself over time. It doesn't have to be all of your job. You're always going to be learning. You're always going to be doing other stuff. Sure. But if you don't have any foundational knowledge in any of the areas you're trying to pick up at one time, you're going to be really frustrated all the time. And that's not fun. And I've been there. So... Yeah, I totally agree with that. I actually just read this um, book recently. Uh, it's one of the uh, Cal Newport books. I think it was like the, uh, I can't remember the title. I'll put it in the show notes, mm-hmm. but it's the precursor to Deep Work, which is a pretty gotcha. popular book. And I think it might be Be So Good They Can't Ignore You or something. Mm. And th- one of the notions in there is this idea of career capital, um, that basically you're, you're, you're building up this this notion of career capital, which is like you're really good at a certain skill set, mm-hmm. and I feel like you've you've mentioned twice now th- this this idea of career capital, like having fifty percent of the work that you do be something that is like a continuation of work that you've already done. Um, but then also just kind of like a- as you talked about earlier, just always kind of like using what you have to kind of like you know motivate the next thing, and um, you can't really like jump you know, wholesale into something else without, you know, being like totally lost and floundering and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But being able to like keep a core and like continue to work from that seems really, um, really valuable as like people are kind of navigating through their career, trying to figure out what they want to do. Um, but, you know, without throwing away something that they are already good at or have like a lot of career capital in. Yeah. And from the outside looking in, and honestly, even to myself at a certain point, I didn't feel like I had much of that career capital. I felt like I was jumping so much that if you were to look, someone said to me once, you know, if you want to do content, you need to know, you need to specialize. And I laughed and I was like, I'm the (laughs) most generalist that you've ever met. And, and so I don't know, I don't know how I feel about it, to be perfectly honest. I think there, I think being a generalist is great. I think being adaptable is really great and it's really important, Mm -hmm. but there is a limit at which uh, you will be effective doing so. You can be a generalist, you can be in multiple different areas, you just wanna make sure that you have some common foundation. But I actually think this is an area that people take for granted, and it's it's funny, before we started talking, you mentioned a talk of mine that I give, it's called um, How to Talk Like an Engineer. And one of the pieces in that is the idea that you forget what foundation you have, you take it for granted. Yeah. So Gatsby, um, people really like the tutorial we have. Shout out to the docs team, me. Hey, great, awesome. Um, and all of my other coworkers, clearly. Uh, but so the tutorial is pretty well known. And one of the reasons people like it is because it has this thing called part zero. And part zero is the piece of many, many docs and tutorials that people take for granted. Our part zero talks you through how to install Node on your computer and how to set up Git. Hmm. Because those are foundations that if you've been a software engineer for a certain period of time, even if you've never worked in JavaScript, you likely have an understanding of Git and you would know how to read the instructions for installing Node and feel relatively comfortable debugging that to a certain extent. 
if you have no background in this, that's just not the case. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the more you work in a specific area, and this is actually where specialists can get have even more tunnel vision than generalists can. Mm -hmm. If you're a specialist, it's almost like um, packed earth. This is how I describe it. It's like topsoil. If you've been walking over the same set of, of grass or topsoil again and again and again and again, it gets more and more compact. And so the stuff that was originally foundational is was originally new to you is now foundational. Like it's, yeah, yeah. it's packed in, it's packed in, it's packed in. And you forget that it ever wasn't versus generalists <laughs> yeah. are so used to jumping out of their comfort zone that they tend to be a little more cognizant of what it's like to learn something with absolutely no context. Yeah, yeah. I think this is one of the reasons that, you know, the, uh, there's this famous uh, Rails tutorial called like railstutorial.org. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, so many people's first like introduction into programming even. And I think one of the, the big successes of it is that that kind of uh, lesson zero type of thinking mm -hmm. um, because it didn't just teach you rails it like had you committing along the way and it taught you all of the things that you needed to know to actually build an app and i totally agree with you that this is an area where where people who are are, are generalists generalists as you, as you say are have like an advantage because they can kind of like go in kind of like deep on something, but then come back out and be like, what does that actually matter to like customers? And like, is there a customer value? Is there even a customer value for this thing? And um, can can have a better sense of like what projects just need to be canned because there re there really are just kind of like some uh, specialist spe like pet project on a certain thing. Twitter Twitter is a nice little test in. Um being a specialist and pet projects because if you if you follow a bunch of people in the same area you lose perspective super fast of what yeah. most of the world has never heard of to be perfectly honest like for <laughs> yeah, example yeah. when when Gatsby came out if you everywhere you turned it was like Gatsby 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 everyone knows Gatsby if you talk to people in enterprise there are some who do but it's nowhere near as prevalent as it is on Twitter spelt is that right yeah. now react yeah, hooks yeah, yeah. was that for a while suspense is going to be that i mean it's just you lose perspective and so the the phrase i like to use is communication and technology um, your goal is to figure out your shared context and align on it as fast as possible. And if you aren't constantly trying to figure out what that shared context is, then you've already missed a step. Interesting. You know, it's funny. I, I actually just read a quote about this. I think it was by like uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. It was something about how like the, the most productive people are those who can, 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 can hold to apparently uh, disparate concepts in their mind. Mm. And then like kind of without panicking, uh, find that thing that actually connects the two. Yep. And that that definitely spoke to me. And I think that, that kind of, you know, is is a little bit related to like what you're talking about. And I think actually this is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show because I feel like so often <laughs> like you'll tweet something or like I'll tweet something. It just feels like we're like often in the same headspace. <laughs> <laughs> well, so Dan Abramoff tweeted something that matches this quote you were just talking about, which is he said, assume zero knowledge and infinite intelligence, which is again, all this same concept of it is 
possible for someone to have no context, share no knowledge that you have, yeah, and for yeah, them yeah. still to be incredibly intelligent and capable of learning, yes. but you have to meet them where you, they are. And that's very, yeah. very hard to do, especially without jargon or without concepts or even like right shared foundation. Without shared foundation, yeah. it's really hard to figure out how to do that. And I think that's what makes teaching really hard, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You kind of have to like break it down into these like atomic nub nuggets, <laughs> like you know, and then like recompose them together based on people's mm -hmm. uh, needs. Yeah. Um, but that's that's one thing I really liked about your, your talking to Jargon. Um, one thing I really liked about that talk that you mentioned just a minute ago, um, like how to talk like an engineer, and it really does tackle that concept of assuming infinite knowledge, but like not a shared. Um, what was it again? Uh, ass assume zero knowledge and infinite intelligence or okay. uh, figure out a shared context and align on it as fast as possible. All yeah, the buzzword yeah, yeah. phrases. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. The, the, so this, this talk that you gave really does go to that, uh, speak to that notion of like when we're like meeting with people that we don't have that shared context with, mm -hmm. we really need to be careful to like step out of, or, or I guess like watch ourselves and the language yeah. that we're using and the assumptions that we kind of walk into a room with and not be afraid to kind of like recontextualize the things that we're saying. Yeah. So the things in that talk, just like the four main things that I run through at the beginning that I, in my opinion, are the most tackleable and are just be aware of them and don't do them kind of situations mm -hmm. are don't use acronyms without defining them. People always come up to me and they're like, you know, there's certain acronyms, acronyms that just everybody knows, like CS. And I was like, okay, but when did you learn CS? Because there was a point before you learned it where you didn't know it. <laughs> yeah. There's overloaded terms, which is stuff like agile and things that you, you need to be a little more specific about because they could have different meaning to different people. There's unintuitive product names, which is the idea that we name things terribly. We name things with marketing in mind. So I'm sorry, but what the heck? <laughs> is Zoom or Slack or <laughs> TensorFlow or, you know, Gatsby, um, <laughs> right? So making sure you're- like Mechanical Turk is one of those ones <laughs> where it's like, I only just learned like maybe a month ago what that even means. Right, like we're, we're terrible at naming things. So providing context for that. And then my personal favorite, this is actually the one that I think trips up the most people, is we like using product names as a concept. So this is tissue versus Kleenex. If you mm, don't know mm. what a Kleenex is, um, or the brand name Kleenex, but you know what a tissue is, and someone asks, do you want a Kleenex? It gets really confusing. So we do this a lot. Uh, like People will say MySQL when they really mean SQL as a language, because there's other yes. SQL-based languages. People will say GitHub, but they really mean Git. Like It could be GitLab, it could be Bitbucket. Um, people will be talking about NoSQL, and they'll just say MongoDB, but that's a specific, <laughs> right? There's a bunch of these. Yeah. Um, so those are the four areas that I would say um, we can kind of eliminate or at least be far more conscious of. And then we get to that shared context and all of these other concepts that we might not understand. And those require a little more practice and thought to be able to explain them. It gets away from the jargon. Once you've, once you've passed that, that first hump of not including jargon, then you get to the heart of the matter, which is how do you explain things that people just don't know? Yeah. Well, this has been, this has been an interesting experience for me because like I, I think I, I gave a kind of like similar, or I talked about a similar thing of kind of like breaking into tech and, um, 
<laughs> my my thing was like from the other side of it where like I realized that there was like a cheat code that I could have whereas like if I could just learn the lingo yeah then I sounded smarter than I actually was and that's a thing <laughs> and so it's kind of like <laughs> it's kind of like using uh I guess weaponizing this concept that you're talking about um which I mean I, in retrospect I don't feel too bad about it because I was able to like actually like get in and then you know continue to help people but the is this why I'm always so impressed by you on the podcast? Because you just sound smart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Like one day, I, I think I might write a blog post about all my tricks to like sound smart. When that's you're a not skill. Smart. I mean, that's a straight up <laughs> skill. <laughs> but I have noticed that um, I think a lot of people, you know, we we kind of feel like in order to sound smart, we mm. have to have certainty about certain things, and. I feel like to your point of 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 being very conscious of the jargon that we use in, in meetings with teams that aren't like kind of like our nuclear team, I have always felt like if you if you handle that correctly, you can ask a question that feels stupid, mm -hmm. but actually you can ask it in such a way that allows people to like see you as like kind of like on their side or empathetic. And like in reality, it doesn't make you come across any less like secure. If anything, it makes you come yeah. across more secure. Yeah. So culture and the comfort level that people have to ask those things is really important because if you don't yeah. hear a single question in a conversation, it probably means that the person on the other end of the conversation is really confused. Yeah. But I think one of the things that people that people miss is, yes, there are times where you will be completely oblivious to the fact that you're using jargon. And part of what the reason I give this talk is that I want people to kind of sit back and think and they're like, oh, crap, I do that a lot. But <laughs> yeah. sometimes you will know because you will feel kind of self-important. You will stand there and be like, I am using all these terms I didn't even understand a week ago. Yes. And when you're doing that, that's probably a sign that you shouldn't be because you're <laughs> doing it to sound smart. And that's, that's great. We all want to sound smart. We all want to feel smart. But by doing so, there's probably someone else in that conversation who's where you were a week ago and has no idea what you're yeah. saying. And so it's okay to use those terms if you want to elevate the vocabulary, if you want to align on this specific set of terms, mm -hmm. but you want to make sure that you are providing the background and basically the definition of those things as you're doing it, depending on your audience. Audience is really the, the thing that matters most. And if it's your team and you've been working with them forever, then there's probably some assumptions you can make. If it's, this is always my favorite, and this is why I like to say this is a senior problem rather than a newbie problem, is when we talk to newbies, we expect that they don't know what we're talking about, and we are sympathetic to that. Yeah, yeah. When we talk to other seniors, especially those in different areas of expertise than us, we just kind of forget we're like oh yeah you're a senior tech person you know what i'm talking about <laughs> and then they like if you're sitting at a table with all of the senior let's say all the staff engineers in your company and you bring together the devops people and the front end people and the back end people and the database experts the design team the product team and let's say security none of you know what the other person is talking about and stop <laughs> pretending like <Yeah>. you do <laughs> I, I had this kind of em empathy experiment that I used to do when I like just to remind myself like in certain like uh, before certain meetings or whatever, uh, where I would like take my guitar, which I've been playing for, I don't know, like 25 years or something like that. And I would just try to do the same thing, but like 
in the reverse. I would play it like left-handed. Oh, and geez. there's <laughs> and like the thing is, it was totally useless, right? Like I, I couldn't actually play the guitar left-handed. But like, I can't play the guitar something... at all. So kudos. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is like it reminds you of like what yeah. it's like to not be able to play the guitar at all. Yeah. Right. To to just just that one little shift, like turning the thing upside down. You're like, oh, okay, like it, it's a. I guess it's like just an experiment in empathy because like everything now is just like muscle memory, right? Like you just spit these terms out because you know like saying the whole thing is is i don't know so much more like uh, difficult or whatever um but but kind of reframing it as like you know what like there was a time when i didn't know how to play this guitar mm -hmm. and like i want to make sure that everyone who can't play the guitar feels included so there's this example that i love that i use in the longer version of that talk and it's a language called yorlang and yorlang uh, all of the keywords in it, instead of being function or for or while, which is based on the English language, it's based on a Nigerian dialect. Huh. And so if you show people a for loop or a while loop and they're programmers, it takes them a little bit longer, but they're able to figure it out because they look at, you know, where the parentheses are and the sure. curly braces and any numbers or multiplication signs. They can parse it, but it takes them a lot longer because you removed just that one piece of keywords in the English language and replaced it with something mm -hmm. they don't understand. And so you can imagine, and, and you gain that empathy really quickly of, if you were to remove the curly braces and use different symbols or restructure this code without prettier or something, all of a sudden you have no idea what it says and, oh my goodness, this is everyone who's not a programmer looking <laughs> yeah. at code. And, it, and it, it gives people this kind of like snap into focus oh my god that's hard yeah <laughs> because it is yeah 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 now you talk about this idea uh, of like programmer product integration I, obviously this is a skill that you you have been really good at um in, in navigating your own career but i know that sometimes it's hard for people to understand and, and you talk about stereotypes it's hard for people to understand that like the better the, that the higher they rank as a programmer the darker their room doesn't get and like the fewer meetings that they aren't in yeah. and that in reality it's almost the opposite that that if you want to like kind of progress in a company you do need to develop your skills of being able to kind of go macro and micro mm -hmm. and think about things from a like holistic mm -hmm. product programming integration uh yeah tell me a little bit more about your journey into like discovering that and like how you found it important yeah, so I blame consulting. I blame consulting for everything. <laughs> There's a couple of things that happen as you get more senior that, that brings this into focus quite a bit. The first is that there's a lot more stuff in your head and you can't do it all yourself. Mm. And so as you start having awareness of what should be architected, for example, or you see potential integration points of failure, or you're like, oh, this is going to be a problem and something our customers are probably going to want because I have enough awareness of what I'm coding and the domain in which I work. When you start having these, these thoughts, it's in your brain and you have to get it out of your brain effectively because <laughs> you cannot code all those things yourself. It's impossible. Yeah. And, and being more senior and having that awareness, even though you have the capacity to code those things now, your time to do so is limited because you have too many things that you're aware of at one time. So that's the first piece. The second piece is one of the earliest things I coded in my career was a portal for managing um, DDoS and DNS traffic for a, a larger provider. 
And my program manager at the time sat me down and put me through boot camp of what is DDoS, what is DNS. I, I <laughs> yeah. didn't re I know I knew some things, but like really not enough. And he made me understand all of the different record types. He made me understand what the routers were returning and and what kind of the funnel of traffic that got split off or canceled, depending on on what the DDoS router was seeing. Like all of this domain knowledge. And at the time, I was really resentful in my head. I didn't say it out loud, luckily. But I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to need to know this. Well, I'm a moron. Of course, that is like <laughs> incredibly useful information that has come up multiple times because it's it's tech, right? Yep, yep. So the idea that that kind of picking your head up and being aware of your domain makes you more valuable as a coder is something yeah. that becomes more and more apparent as you grasp. It's basically like Lego bricks. So when you start in your career, it's okay not to be aware of the context you're working in to a certain extent because you're still trying to make sure your for loop syntax is right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then it goes a step further and it's you're trying to make sure that your file isn't a thousand lines long and integrates correctly with the API you're using, but you're still focused on specific lines of code. And when you get to mastering that more and more, you're never going to fully know everything, right? But when sure. you have more comfort level with those smaller building blocks, you need to get bigger building blocks on top of that. And those things are yeah. always going to take you outside of your IDE. And they're always going to make you pick up your head, look around. It makes you more valuable, but it also helps you do your job better. Yeah. And there will still be people who are going to listen to this and argue with me and be like, I only care about the DevOps pipeline. I don't need to know anything else. And I mean, I can't convince them otherwise, but I'm pretty sure, for example, if you're a DevOps engineer, it might be really useful to understand which one of the 50 systems you support is going to be most popular on Black Friday. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think that there's this, it, it, it's hard to like communicate, right? And I, mm -hmm. I, I, I know that I want the same thing, right? Like there's a tension in me where like, I just want to sit down and like execute my brilliance onto the computer. <laughs> oh yeah. We all <laughs> like, have none it. of us are above it. <laughs> yeah, none of us are above it. And and to be fair, I I do still think it's important to carve out that time because as you get more yeah. senior, if you don't explicitly carve out that time, it's not gonna happen. There's this do you have the tweet up? Because I know there's this tweet of mine I said yeah. the other day that you want to talk about that is one hundred percent this talk problem. About this is this is a good a good segue right here. Okay, so so you said uh, this was like a couple weeks ago. You said something that really s stuck with me, and to quote you, uh, I've always had a habit of filling holes in quotes, um, seeing work that needs to be done and doing it. Uh, I suppose it's a bit of a cousin to glue work. Uh, realizing recently that when I do that, I don't make conscious, I don't make a conscious decision about the type of work I want to do. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about that. What were you What were you thinking about at the time? So it's it's literally what you just said. There are times where I just want to sit down in an IDE and write code. But because I have this pick your head up and look around, yeah. I can point out a hundred hours of work a week that I could be doing that would be effective and productive because I'm looking outside of just the tasking that I have at a given period of time. I'm aware of the fact, I said it at the beginning, that I am a consultant within my company and therefore there are five other teams that could probably benefit from stuff that I can think to do in a moment. But because you see all those holes and because you have this awareness of what could be useful both immediately down the line in some niche capacity, you start realizing 
okay, but I don't want to do all those things. I'm just doing them because I see them. And <laughs> yeah. so making a conscious choice to say, okay, someone probably needs to go audit like these seven docs. I really don't want to do that. It needs to be done. I should write it down. Yeah. I should offload that information from my head. But that's not something that I should probably spend my time doing right now. And prioritization is a piece of this, right? But if you don't take the stuff that's in your brain out of it, and you don't consciously make a decision to say, just because it's a thing I think needs to be done doesn't mean it's a thing that I'm specifically going to yeah, do, yeah. you won't ever. You will end up, like, <laughs> the, the kind of quintessential example of this is, there are people who need management. I should go and offer to be their manager because we need that. And it's like, I don't want to be a manager. Certainly not now. Maybe not ever. But it's a hole I see. So why don't I volunteer to fill it? I mean, the funny example is uh, we just hired Kim Maida as our head of DevRel. She's fantastic. And there was a short period of time where she didn't exist in our company yet. And so there was all this DevRel work. Um, and community work that we were thinking, what does it look like? What needs to be done? And I was like, okay, great. I got a whole plan. I've written down all these things that I think we can do. And they looked at me and they're like, okay, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. It's got to be done. And then I sat back. I was like, no, I really don't. Like, I, really I have plenty of really other don't. stuff I have to do. <laughs> Why am I doing things that, that don't line up with where I want to be now, where I want to be a year from now, where I want to be five years from now? So... You don't always get that choice. You don't always get to pick absolutely everything you want to do. But if you are constantly doing things, it's startup environment, like full caveat, this is very startup environment. If you're <laughs> sure, constantly sure, sure. just jumping uh, and raising your hand to do a task because you think it needs doing, it's probably worth stepping back and saying, okay, if I start down this path, it's probably going to lead me to be the owner of this for X amount of time and it's going yeah. to evolve and expand. Is that really what I want to do or should I recommend this be done but maybe not volunteer to do it myself? Yeah, and that's a really hard thing to navigate as you like <laughs> as you're kind of developing your career capital or like a kind of a hard switch to flip is cuz you you kind of in in your early phases you're like I will take whatever I can, right? Yep. And then there's this this moment that happens where you have to really be like a lot more selective and you have to mm -hmm. think about your future and like where that intersects with like your current company's future and you know there's this tendency to like just keep pressing on and doing what's best for you know like the company yep. um, but that's to your point like that isn't always necessarily aligned with like the things that are going to be best for you and your career and like the next opportunities ahead of you and like I guess how do you like how do you frame that right like how do you pass up something that sounds like a really good opportunity but just doesn't have your name on it how do you even identify like what it is that like has your name on it yeah so I actually think the best example of this is is in the content creation space. So if, if people have seen me around before, they may see that I write a lot of blog posts. I'm an egghead instructor. I speak at a fair number of conferences. There are a handful of other kind of content creation teachery things that I do. There was a time where I was scrapping for every opportunity in that space yep. to start growing my opportunities. That time has ended. Um, <laughs> bluntly, and, and, I, and I don't mean to kind of toot my own horn, there are people who have no. 5 million more opportunities than I do, but there are DMs that I get on any given day saying, hey, will you speak at this event, or hey, will you um, write a guest blog post for us, and all of those things, and when you're used to saying yes to everything, yeah. 
It's very, very hard to all of a sudden sit back and say, I need to change my approach. And, yep. and unfortunately for me, I reached the point of burnout. In November of last year, in 2019, I was, I didn't spend more than three days in a row in my own bed. Oh. And I had an egghead course that was being released the next month. And I was putting yeah. out a blog post a week. I was done. I was done. Yeah. And I just started yeah. Yeah. a new job at Gatsby, right? <laughs> I was completely flat out done. I, we had just gotten a puppy too. Like oh, everything was <laughs> happening and it was, it was awful. I hated it. Um, and it and all I, happens at once, doesn't it? Right, right? exactly. Yeah. It all happens at once. And so I hope that other people don't get to that moment. But realistically, for most of the content people I've talked to, everyone does. Someone, you'll push yeah. it too far. Yeah. And yep. so I got to the point where I said, okay, my default answer just went from being yes to being no. Yeah. And it has to be that extreme. My default answer is no. If I am not really excited about something or it fits perfectly in my schedule or it's something that I think aligns well with the work I'm already doing, if it's not scalable in some way for me, I actually just wrote about this for, um, <laughs> for International Women's Day. I said, if it's not scalable in some way for me, then I'm not doing it. Yeah. Because I can't be every everywhere. And actually, this has been harder for me, I think, than, than the work stuff. Because the work stuff, you know, you have managers and colleagues who will kind of tap you on the shoulder. I'm very lucky to have those people and say, Lori, what are you doing? You don't want to do that. You're already doing too much. <laughs> sit down, shut up, and sit back and let someone else do it. But in the content space, there's this constant pressure yeah. from people that I care about deeply saying, hey, you know, are you going to come back and do another egghead course? Or, hey, I love your blog posts. Are you going to keep doing those? Or, hey, will you speak at this conference? And I feel terrible saying no. <laughs> yeah. And so, but I've learned that my default right now has to be no. And then, mm -hmm. then you make really conscious decisions. So you have to decide what your goal is and where you're going. It doesn't have to be, you know, five years from now, but let's say what you want this year to look like. Because especially in the content space, a year goes by really quickly. If you're submitting to CFP six months in advance, then if you're looking at adding stuff to your schedule now, it's not going to happen until, you know, fall. And I looked at my schedule coming out of November, and I was already committed to like three or four conferences in 2020 yep. at that point. So I shut it down. I submitted mm -hmm. to a single CFP for all of 2020. And then I started saying, if I'm traveling for personal reasons, for family reasons, or for Gatsby reasons away that don't have to do with a conference, because we have, you know, team and company meetups, I'm not speaking at a conference that month. I'm not traveling yeah. again. And just setting hard limits for yourself. You can't be everywhere, but everyone's limit is different. And figuring out what you want to do with your time is going to look different th to everybody, which is the most wishy-washy answer ever. But <laughs> No, I think... That there's, there's so much truth to that. And I, I, I empathize with that deeply because I also had like this like nervous breakdown moment where it was just <laughs> like, I literally, I literally can't do the things that I've already committed to doing. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of like, at least for me, it was like I was forced into doing that. And I was, it was right around the time of like the, the, the podcast or whatever. And I was like, you know what, if I want to make this thing work, I have to say no to everything else. And yeah. there's this really cool blog post. I, I'm going to mention just because I'd like to link it, but um, it's by Derek Sivers. And, uh, and and the title is No Yes, Either Hell Yeah or No. Oh, yeah, I read that. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I've tried to use that. And I certainly used that uh, 
when I was looking, I would get messages every so often about potential jobs that had opened. And unless I was 100% yes, I wasn't even going to entertain an interview because I didn't have time. Yeah. Yeah. More than anything, the transition is hard, right? Because mm -hmm. you're just, you're just like pumping and grinding like so hard. And then all of a sudden, like you, you, like you said, you burn out of this thing that you love and you wanted to like make happen. And you really have to end up making have, uh, you know, making hard decisions about like, what you want and like and training other people up to kind of like carry the the torch that you'd kind of like set forth yeah there's two things i think you can do to make it a little bit better on yourself um the first is have a bench of people to refer for those opportunities especially yeah. people who have fewer opportunities than you do especially underrepresented people in mm -hmm. in my case i've been trying to get more and more names that I can point people to, especially in the spaces that I exist in. So if they're looking yeah. for someone who speaks about JavaScript, great. If they're looking for someone who's got a, a teacher culture bent, okay, do I have someone for that? Do I have someone in yeah. specific geographic areas, for example? Um, and then the other piece is recognize that an abundance of opportunities is now upon you and like let that sink in for a second because I think what, <laughs> I think what people have trouble realizing is they no longer have to use the scarcity mindset that if they don't say yes to this opportunity, even if it's timeline wise on top of four other things, yeah. that they're never going to get it again. If you're at the point that people are asking you to do these things, you're going to get asked to do maybe not this exact thing, but something similar down the road. Or if it's something that really matters to you and you really want to do it, work with them and say, hey, I can't do it right now. If they're asking, they want your participation. And so yeah. keeping, keeping that mindset of, I can let this opportunity go because there will be others is hard, but necessary. I love that idea of having a bench. Um, I, I don't really have it in any formal way, but I do have like people in mind for certain topics that like when I like get asked for something, I'm like, oh, well, I chatted with this person. I, I'm honestly, React Podcast is kind of like my, my, my bench, to be honest. I'll be like, oh, listen to this episode with so-and-so. It's exactly what you're looking for. Have them do it. Yeah, no, and, and that's great. And that's how scalable something like recording is. That's yeah. how... I think scalability is kind of the name of the game for me right now. And and it doesn't take one form. It's either it's scalable because I do it once and other people can benefit from it. Yeah, yeah. Or it's scalable because I am teaching other people by doing it. And therefore, there are more people who can then do it down the line. Yeah, yeah. Now, as you navigate your career and uh, you're in these like kind of like senior stages of your career, um, how do you get you, you'd mentioned kind of like having people to be able to tell you like, Mm -hmm. to, to give you that perspective about yeah. your own career. How do you find that? And, you know, who do you look for to provide that perspective for you? Yeah, so um, networking is the most important thing you can do and not mm. the way that everyone tells you to do it. I don't care how many LinkedIn connections you have. I never <laughs> checked LinkedIn. I don't care how many Twitter followers you have, bluntly. The friend you make in this industry is going to be 10 times more valuable than any of that. They don't have to work for your company. They don't even have to be in your technology space. But if they have a general concept of the, this industry and how it works, they are an incredibly valuable sounding board. And I have been so, so fortunate. I have met so many wonderful people that I have formed genuine friendships with. Yeah. Um, so for example, Lindsay Kopax, her 
apartment building was behind my old office building and we would get coffee all the time. And so she and I slack all the time and I'm like, hey, help me with this thing. When I was first blogging, Ali Spittle was living in the DC area at the time and super, super helpful. I have people I work with um, like Madeline at Gatsby and obviously Marcy and Aisha on my team. There are people I have grown to have friendships with and then there are people who I had never met who I could DM (laughs) on any given day and get for perspective from. Chris Viscardi is like top of that list for me. He is just incredibly open and wonderful. And he's the one actually who saw that tweet about filling spaces and sent me a message and he was like, I've been trying to tell you this. Um, (laughs) He was like, you are really bad at this. You have a bad habit. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, That is true. Like, I feel like Chris Picard, if you're looking, like, if you just want to get a sense of like what uh, like career coaching in tech looks like, (laughs) you should join the Party Corgi uh, uh, Discord by Chris Biscardi because like he will... Like, beat your ass into shape if you're willing to, if oh, you yeah. want it. Fair warning, he has opinions. Like, it's not for the <laughs> yeah. faint of heart. But yeah, so so meeting these people and forming gener- genuine interactions with them over time, whether it's you met them at a conference or you met them in your job, it's really important because they are the ones who have the context. They are the ones who know you better. Because honestly, if you have a nameless, faceless group of Twitter followers, and don't get me wrong, I love the people I get to interact with on that platform, and I have made friends through interactions on that platform, but if you put out a poll to, let's say, 10,000 people and say, what should I do? Like, that's not going to be effective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's effective is someone who knows, you know, maybe a little bit about your personal life and what you're trying to do there. They know a little bit about... Um, what your goals are going forward or what transitions you've been through recently. There's a lot of context. Or, frankly, they know your personality type. My friends know that I will agree to do a million things <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll never renege on those commitments. Like, they know that. They know I will get to that point, be in no position to do those things, and I'm still going to do them because I hate letting people down. And they're like, so don't commit to it because... It's a bad decision <laughs> and you need those people. And interestingly enough, this is somewhat tangential, but one of the things I say a lot is we talk about imposter syndrome in this industry constantly and it is yeah. absolutely a real thing. I'm not trying to discount that, but there is a very fine line when people tell you, when you say, I don't think I can do this thing and people will immediately jump and answer, oh, that's just imposter syndrome talking. That is a true statement if they know you. If they don't know you, it's very possible that you just don't yet have the credentials or experience (laughs) or knowledge to do that thing. And you need people who can tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. You just do. Yeah, that is the truth. I mean, like, because, like, we're all on a continuum of, like, imposter syndrome to Dunning-Kruger effect, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so and and I guess uh, to 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 not just be using these terms without defining them. Yes, uh, imposter you. syndrome is is kind of like that feeling of like you don't know enough. You're going to be found out for not knowing all of these things, uh, even though you have plenty of experience to actually like justify you doing the thing. It would be like you walking into a convention and saying. I'm a fraud and no one knows, I don't really know how to run a podcast. And everyone would be like, this is ridiculous. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Versus Dunning-Kruger is me running in and saying, I'm the greatest podcast host that's ever been when I've never, never run one. (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah. So like, we're all kind of on this continuum of like, of these two things, right? And, and, And I think that you know, what you're saying is so true is having those people in your life to, I guess, like validate your feeling, like whatever 
side of that spectrum that you're on is so important. And I, I mean, I can't say how many times I've like hit up people that I've met through the industry to just be like, hey, like, you know enough about me in these departments to know, uh, like, whether or not I should jump on this opportunity. Like, yeah. am I like, am I do I think I'm way better than I am? Like, yeah, should I go after this? Or like, it, is this well within my my capacity? And I should do this right now. I have a good friend I was just talking to and they got a job offer and they literally the next tweet after they told or the next message after they told me and I was like, I'm so excited for you. And they were like, how did I trick them into hiring me? And I was like, oh my (laughs) gosh, like you didn't trick anybody. You are one of the foremost experts in that area. You are like, obviously I can't disclose who it is or what it is. It hasn't happened yet, but you know, so many amazing things versus, I mean, I have known people who have, I've either seen the conversation happen tangentially or someone has asked me and they'll say something to the effect of like, am I ready to go from an entry level job to a mid or senior level job? And my answer realistically is, I don't know. And I can't answer that for you because I don't have enough information about your background and I would hate to tell you, go for it, you just have imposter syndrome if the reality is you're going to be really let down or set up for failure. Yeah. Like you don't want someone to end up in a position where they're just not ready because even if they manage to get, you know, past the interview or whatever it is, that doesn't serve anybody. And and it, it's really frustrating. It's the quicksand we talked about earlier. It's <laughs> it's funny when you're a consultant trying to figure out, you know, what in the world a floor robot does, not my area of expertise. Um, It's funny because I was surrounded by experts, right? And it was kind of like, Lori can flail and figure out what this is. She's not really on the hook for being the expert here. It's less funny if you take on a role and then just feel wholly unprepared to do so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I think what you've said is is so critical. And I, I tend to, you know, forget that I have this in my life. But you know, both of these things, you know, uh, imposter syndrome and Dunning-Kruger effect is like the things that we are afraid of is just not knowing mm-hmm. and having people in our life who are willing to tell us mm-hmm. fixes that problem. Yeah. Right. It, it it makes the problem go away because they, they are able to look at you and be like, actually, like, I do know you. I do know that you are capable or not quite ready yet yeah. um, of doing this thing. And uh, I mean, going back to that talk that you gave, um, you know, how to talk like an engineer, you end with this really beautiful sentiment uh, with the idea of of saying what you mean, you know, when you say something is like, instead of saying something simple or easy, actually saying like, hey, you are a capable person. I believe in your capability to understand this and like yeah. onboard quickly. And uh, I just, I I love that notion. And I hope that we can kind of as a community get better about talking in those terms. Yeah. Um, instead of the other terms. Yeah. And, and the other thing I'd add is, read the room a little bit. Like if your friend is looking for a cheerleader, be a cheerleader. If your friend is genuinely asking your opinion, be honest with them. And don't <laughs> yeah. and don't just be like, yeah, you can do it unless you truly believe that they can. Because if our friends can't tell us the truth, who can, right? Yeah. Like you were telling me before any of this started, I talk a lot. So this was going to be a long episode. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I said we talk a lot, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, if we, we can do a split, right? There's got to be some algorithm that can take my pitch of voice versus your pitch of voice and do a percentage. And it's going to be like mm, 75-25. Well, you know, it's your show. It's your show. So that's, uh, so that's good. Says, that's exactly how it should be. the host of React Podcast. Quite literally your show. <laughs> your episode. It's your my episode. My episode. There we go. See? Context matters. <laughs>
So um, I, I I love all of this. I'm so ha- I'm so happy that we get to share this. Um, I think uh, as we go, I just kind of wanted to get a sense of like things things that you're excited about, bullish on, mm-hmm. like technology wise or just trends in the industry. Yeah. So I feel like we saw you know a huge rise of some level of static content for in the front end space. You know, obviously Gatsby, but. Things like uh, Gridsome and 11D and all of those things, we've seen a lot of that recently and it's grown in popularity. There's great performance benefits to it, out of the box, um, accessibility in certain cases, that kind of stuff. It's great. But what we're realizing is when we take that out of the smaller kind of blog post personal site playground and we, we use it in enterprise or larger you know, company places, um, it what we gain in runtime, we lose in build time. Mm. And so I think we're seeing a lot of people focus on that problem. I mean, Gatsby is definitely one of them. Gatsby Cloud, if people aren't familiar with it, go check it out. Check out the docs in particular. I may or may not have written those. <laughs> um, but but I think we're seeing other, you know, other people in that space as well. Um, Netlify obviously is there. There's different people who are doing different optimizations. There's even like CICD pipeline hooks and, and yeah. things like that to address the idea of paralyzing some of that build processing. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to see more in that space. I think we're going to, you know, I don't know what I'd be given away by saying any other words. So I'm not going to say any other words. But I think we're going to see more in that space from a lot of different people. And I think that makes that makes static even more approachable. It, it makes some of these frameworks that benefit from both the server-side stuff and the client-side piece it makes them a lot easier for content creators to use. So if you're changing your CMS in the background, people are used to that WordPress publish preview button that (laughs) hasn't really existed in the headless CMS world. I think we're getting there. Um, It definitely exists in some spaces. I think it's going to get better and better. So I am very bullish on that because I hated the idea that what we gained in runtime, we lost in build time. And I'm excited to solve that problem so I don't have to, you know, worry about DevOps because been there, done that. (laughs) (laughs) awesome well uh laurie where can people find you online to get your uh your your wisdom nuggets on a daily (laughs) basis um if you follow me on twitter at laurie on tech you will see um random nuggets of wisdom and lots of puppy pictures so like (laughs) win-win um and i have a i have a website as well laurieontech.com if you look at the blog heading you'll see all of my new writing, uh, which I cross-post on Dev2 as well, but I just recently started self-hosting my blog, so I'm excited about that. Awesome. Well, Lori, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for the time. Yeah, thanks so much. It was nice to talk to you. Find the people and projects mentioned in this episode at reactpodcast.com slash 89. Thanks to our sponsor this week, Infinite Red. If you're stuck in a React or React Native project, tap Infinite Red for help. They'll teach you your way out of whatever problem you face. Visit reactpodcast.infinite.red to start a new project today and get two tickets to Chain React Conf in 2021. If you like this show, there's a fast, free way to demonstrate your support. Leave us a review on iTunes. It's the best way for you to let me know what you think we're doing right and what we can improve. Two to three minutes of your time helps us make the best show we possibly can. As always, links and show notes for all episodes are available at reactpodcast.com. This episode was edited by Mikhail Delport. It was produced by Mikhail Delport and Sarah Jackson at Spec. 
a network to help you level up in design and development. Check out spec.fm for other shows that are sure to fast track your career. I'm your friend Chantastic. Thanks for listening. We'll be in your ears again next week. Thank you.